Hello and welcome to the So You Want to Work in the Arts webinar from Creative Youth. Um, I'm Yarek Zaba, um, male, uh, wearing a, a red top in my mid-30s. Um, I'm a researcher um, for heritage projects with Creative Youth. Um, I'm currently a researcher on a project called Amp Kingston, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a second. Um, but just before we get going properly, uh, let me introduce my guests. Um, so Rib, first of all, Rib, do you want to just introduce yourself and just tell us a little, little bit about yourself? Okay, yeah, uh, my name's Rib Davis. Um, I'm an old white bloke. Um, I'm sitting in uh, my living room with a pink polo over on. Um, I could be wearing glasses, I normally am, but I'm not right at this moment. Um, I'm an oral historian and a playwright. Uh, and I spend probably two thirds of my time working in art history and a third of my time one way or another working in theatre. And sometimes those things go together and sometimes they're completely separate. Thanks, Rip. Um, and yet, yeah, Tim, Tim Harrison, if you could just do the same. Yes, hi, Tim Harrison. Um, I'm afraid another old white bloke. Um, though remarkably well preserved, casually, rather thoughtlessly dressed. Uh, I'm a journalist, have been all my puff. And uh, I've also written um, several books. Um, I'm getting involved in local theatre as well. Lovely stuff. And yeah, today we're going to be talking about how we use oral histories and interviews more generally as a way of exploring music heritage, um, because that is what we're doing currently with Amp Kingston, and it's what we did previously with a project called Kingston RPM. Um, Kingston RPM stood for Records, People and Music. It looked at um, Kingston's music heritage uh, around the 1940s through to the 1960s. So we looked at um, the US Army being based on Bushy Park um, and the influence the American GIs had with the records and tastes they brought with them. We looked at a Decca Records factory in New Malden and we looked at the sort of rich tapestry of venues Kingston has um, or had um, uh, at that time. Um, AMP is the sequel, essentially. AMP is bringing that story um, up to date. So it's, it's going from the 70s right up to the present day. AMP starts uh, stands for art, music, and pop fashion. Um, and some of the themes we're looking at includes, well, David Bowie launching Ziggy Stardust at, at the Toby Jug in 1972, a huge story of, of not just local significance, but, but national and international significance as well. Um, the uh, the AMP project has a exhibition uh, going into Kingston Museum at the end of March, uh, but that's really just the start of our output. We have um, another touring exhibition, which I think will be happening later uh, later in the year. We have a fashion show that's happening in June. Um, lots of sort of artistic responses from young people, um, because this isn't just talking about the past, it's connecting it to the present as well. Um, but a big part of the RPM and AMP projects are oral history interviews. Um, we did 15 for RPM. I think we're going to do 24, at least 24 for AMP. Uh, by the by the end of the project. Um, so over this next sort of 45 minutes to an hour, um, the idea is that I wanted to tap into sort of Rib and Tim's expertise um, as to how we can use interviews to explore local heritage and with specific ref uh, uh, with reference specifically to, to music. Um, at this stage, I was going to introduce Rib and Tim, but they've just done that themselves. Um, so I'll, 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 I think we'll just get into the, the actual topic. Um, I think I'll start with Rib because as a as a an oral historian, um, I mean I know you're uh, 
Uh, I think you're uh, accredited with the Oral History Society, is that correct? Um, the yeah. British Library. Um, so I guess it'd just be great to just get a sort of um, uh, a summary of what is an oral history. Okay. Um, oral history is recording someone talking about their own lived experience, um, usually at length and in depth. And it's an interview that's conducted in a particular way and it's intended to be archived as well as using used for a particular purpose. Um, so it's recorded for a start. Uh, so, you know, you, you can go and meet people and take notes and that can be useful, but it's not oral history. When, when we say oral history, we mean recorded oral history. And then you're not asking anybody for a history of the music scene in Kingston. You'll be asking them about their own personal lived experience and you put that history together. Um, and then it's conducted in a particular way, which tends to be, <clears throat> I mean, it overlaps with journalism and, and other forms, but it tends to be less conversational than most other forms of interviewing. Um, so we keep ourselves out of the interview as far as that's possible. And we focus purely on the interviewee. Great. And uh, what do you think are the main advantages of doing interviews in, in this sort of way, as opposed to, say, maybe a, a more journalistic way? Um, it allows the interviewee to have full reign and say exactly what they want um, and allows the, the listener to focus completely on the interviewee uh, and not both. Because by and large, we're not really bothered about the interviewer as listeners. You know, um, we're bothered about the interviewee. And very often interviewers love to get their, their all in and their experiences in, you know, but actually that's not what we're there for. Um, so it's focusing completely on on the interviewee. Sure, sure. And uh, I guess I, I bring Tim in here because Tim, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that, that you don't you don't build you build yourself as a journalist, not as a as an oral historian. But I wonder where some of the crossover lies because um, so just to take the Toby Jug story, which which you've written into this fa fabulous book. Um, hello, Tolworth. I'm Ziggy. Um, I mean, uh, with it within that book, like, just give us a sense first of all of how many interviews you did for that book. I mean, I guess it would be <clears throat> probably 500 in total, uh, probably with around about 300 people. Uh, and I did that over about five years. It was it was a project that more or less found itself. It kind of built itself. Uh, into a book. Um, I didn't originally set off with the idea of writing a book. I wanted to research the whole history of the Toby Jug pub and specifically David Bowie's launch uh, of Ziggy Stardust there, 10th of February 1972. So we've just uh, just had the 51st anniversary of it. Um, I was really doing it partly as a research project for uh, the local paper I produced for the Surbiton area, The Good Life. Um, but it kind of, I was getting so much information, so many different angles from so many different people. It just kind of built into a colossal history um, that I then told in, in book form. Um, but it didn't really start out as a book, but I would definitely say there's overlap between uh, what Rick was talking about in terms of the structure of all oral histories uh, and my interviewing of endless people. Uh, some of them I recorded, although it was only just on my phone. It wasn't a formal 
recording. Some of them didn't even know they were being recorded, which is probably unethical, but uh, but mainly it was making notes. Uh, I was interviewing, sitting with people over a cup of tea, over a pint of beer, um, and chatting to them about their memories, their recollections, and then kind of triangulating um, all the, the memories. Because some people remember correctly, some people get things blurred. Um, that, I guess, is the story with oral histories, too, that people could be wrong but sincerely wrong, and that's fine too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Rib, I, I just wonder if, uh, you know, going by what Tim has spoken about there, I guess the, the key distinction between what Tim's talking about and what you're talking about, I guess, is the recording and the arch archiving of it. Well, Tim, Tim is probably doing a, a, an interview that is similar to do an oral history interview he's letting them speak about their lived experiences but he's not recording it with the with with the idea of submitting it to an archive at the end yeah um there's a, there's a lot of overlap um and i mean some precious oral historians um seem to think if something isn't oral history then it's not valuable um i just think well it's not oral history but it's great you know like vox pops are not oral history but they're great yeah. um so uh yeah it, it's all good yeah yeah, I mean, Tim, do you, because because I'm aware that you're, you're obviously a, a journalist of, of of many decades experience here, here in the area. Uh, did you find yourself when you were interviewing people for the book, approaching the interview in a different way than you would if you were doing it, say, for the Surrey Comet? No, no, I think I approach all interviews in a very similar way. You You do a little bit of initial chat and then you perhaps ask a, a handful of questions that lead on to other issues that go off in a direction you weren't expecting. Um, but I, I kind of learned interviewing of people um, just really on the hoof. I mean, I started as a teenager on the Surrey Comet newspaper. Uh, it was my first job after I left school. And um, I was always sent out on interviews. In those days, you were allocated a geographical area. So I was told to cover New Malden. And for the first uh, couple of years, that's what I did. I would go to the area, meet shopkeepers, residents, just chat to people generally. And that way, unearthing stories that were kind of off diary, slightly more unusual, human interest stories. Um, you definitely find the the best you stumble upon the best news stories just by chatting to people um and i just make a few notes occasionally little bits of shorthand but i've got very little of that left um and i just jot things down gradually then build them into news stories and write them and in a way a book is just a very extended news story broken up into chapters um, and as long as you're focusing on um, each individual chapter one at a time um, there's a lot of overlap between the chapters too you just have to be careful not to repeat yourself or waffle off on a tangent um, but basically it's assembling everybody's memories trying to sort the real ones from the kind of half-remembered ones, um, and just building it all into a history chronologically within each chapter. 
Rib, I suppose that's another difference um, in terms of how we handle the interview content. Um, an oral historian doesn't necessarily have to uh, make that distinction between what is what might be a, a true recollection and what might be a false memory. Um, if we're just submitting it to the archives, it's just sort of being submitted as their memory. We're not having to editorialise in that way, right? Well, if, if, if you're just talking about what's submitted to the archive, yes, but usually oral history is a... Uh, created for particular purposes, for uh, for a book, for an exhibition, for a website, for a play, and then you're absolutely doing exactly what what Tim was talking about. Uh, you're you know you're selecting, you're grouping together, um, and you're you're telling a story um, from from a hundred different stories. So it's it's actually a very similar process. Um, so when I've been putting together documentary plays based on interviews. Um, it's it's a very similar process to what Tim was talking about. Only we call oh. them acts and he calls them chapters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I, and I and I just wonder, in your many years of experience, have there been any particular oral history projects that really stand out for you in terms of either being really enjoyable to work on or uh, having a really interesting output in innovative ways of displaying the oral histories? Yes, um, lots. Um, I suppose the one I, I enjoyed most was one of the earliest ones, um, which was in a place called Eastwood um, in the 1980s, and that's a long time ago. Um, and it was just after the miners' strike, uh, the huge miners' strike that happened at that time. Uh, and the play was about the miners' strike that had happened in the 1920s that people still remembered. Um, and it had, in the play, we had striking people, miners who'd be on strike and miners who hadn't been on strike together in the play. Uh, and it, the atmosphere of the, the, the whole place was absolutely electric. Um, it was a fascinating time of working with those people, and I, I just loved it. Yeah, 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 wonderful. Um, yeah, and I, I guess what other different ways we can use oral histories? I mean, you alluded to a couple there. Um, you know, um, I think the way I've been most used to using them is to cut them up for clips into to go into an exhibition onto listening posts. Yeah. Um, I mean, how, how, what sort of what are the different ways you've seen them used over the years? Well, there's that. Um, there's still books. People still like books, um, but <clears throat> but you can put something in the back of the book so that they can hear it as well. You know, so it might be a QR code or it might be a, a memory stick or even, you know, old fashioned CD. So we can actually hear the voices because the voice is so different to just the word spoken. You know, the voice carries a huge amount in oral history. Um, so yeah, there are those. There's, as I said, there's plays of, of various sorts. Um, there are things like listening benches, which I think are great. Um, you know, so people can sit down on, on a bench and have a little rest in the park and listen to, you know, whoever lived locally, um, those sorts of things. There's, there's a huge variety. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a very good point, actually. It's interesting. The oral history aspect um, allows you to listen to people's accents uh, in a way that a written account of their interview can never achieve. And I suspect, I don't know whether Rib agrees to this, I suspect that we probably don't know how these could be used in the future. Uh, because these are little recordings, obviously, while people are still alive, uh, because they're real memories of real people. But when those people have passed on, um, their recollections, their voice, the way they speak, the accent, everything, um, 
is still very valuable and could still be valuable in hundreds of years' time. Yeah, absolutely. For all sorts of different purposes. Yeah, yeah. And um, if we listen to interviews now that were done 100 years ago uh, of so-called ordinary people, the the accents um, and the vowel sounds, yeah. you know, completely different to now. Um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So that, for me, is another good reason for, for archiving, you know, for future generations. My, yeah. um, my late father worked at the BBC. He was in Radio News. So he regularly came home with um, little tape recorders, little uh, Ewer machines um, at, that he used in the BBC. And I remember um, he interviewed um, my sisters and me one Christmas. I suppose we would have been about 10, 11. And I remember him playing this later, maybe 20 years later to us. We sounded like... Um, the queen and and a couple of princes we were all sort of oh hello father yes are you going to record us and i i'm so embarrassed by how i sounded then i couldn't believe it um but it is interesting how uh interviews rich right interviews of a few decades ago um tend to be much more formal we're, mm. we're now much more informal everyone's much more laid back uh, in the language they use. Crikey, you've only got to travel on the top deck of a bus to hear the language today. But anyway, it's <laughs> another subject. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, you 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 raise a really interesting point about um, the advantages of um, uh, consuming an interview through 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 listening to them, uh, where you mentioned the the accent and the, and the personality of someone coming out that maybe isn't possible in the written word. But then there are also disadvantages to doing something through a recording rather than um, it being presented in written word. And I'm thinking technical challenges. So um, obviously with an oral history, uh, it's not much use if you've got really, really distracting background sound. And I, I, and I, and I say this um, not just coming from the experience of Heritage, but my day job outside of Heritage is uh, in podcasts. And so um, I'm used to interviewing people for podcasts. And it is a nightmare if there are building works going on nearby or, any you know, there's a dog in the house or something like that. I mean, where have you encountered many challenges along these lines while oh. trying to set up an all history interview? Yeah, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and you deal with as much as you can in advance. You know, yeah. like we are going to need it to be quiet if there's anybody else around. But they, you know, the, the person you're interviewing, it's not their job, really, to, to think of these things in advance. No, and they course. don't realise that, you know, grandma who always watches television in the next room at 10,000 decibels every morning is going to be doing her usual, you know, and you turn up and it doesn't occur to them that that's a problem. Um, and, oh, and dogs, cats sitting on the equipment, uh, fish splashing, uh, you know, <laughs> traffic and, and lorries just stopping immediately outside and keeping going. Oh, yeah, the helicopters I've had. Um, the whole works. Have you have you ever had to do a, an interview in a particularly unusual setting? Have you have you ever been asked if you can do it in somewhere where it's just noisy or? Um, yeah, but not intentionally. I mean, I don't mind if the noise rel is relevant. You know, yeah. it, it feels like a location interview. You know, you're in the steelworks and you can hear the steelworks. That that's okay. It's when it's completely irrelevant. You know, the person who insists on on being interviewed in a cafe and they're just hearing stupid clinking noises that have got nothing to do with the interview. I think, why are we here? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, th- and this sort of, yeah, this sort of moves us on to, you know, some of the challenges of interviewing, which I, which I kind of wanted to run by you both. I mean, Tim, in your time doing the Toby Jug book or maybe in, in journalism more, more generally, have you ever encountered just that really difficult interviewee who's just, you, you know, they've got something to tell you, but they're just not, not, not saying it? Some, some people can be a little bit suspicious about um, your motivation in questioning them about things. Some people don't like to reveal too much personal story. They're happy with recalling memories, but perhaps less happy uh, um, for whatever reason, just a general sense of privacy, maybe um, less happy about talking about themselves. Uh, and yet, as Rubes alluded to, that is the fascinating part um it's the person and their perspective um and you do need to know a bit of the background of the person to be able to relate it to the stories they're telling um actually the the example never mind lorries and helicopters the example that always amuses me in interviews is when a mobile phone goes off i mean it it happened so often there was a classic on Newsnight about two weeks ago where ken baker was being interviewed the old 70s politician uh, and his phone kept going off and he couldn't shut it off and he had to hand it over to the interviewer in the end to try and stop it and i remember i worked for a while on uh, i worked for 18 years in fact on question time up at the bbc uh, and again there was a classic where michael Heseltine was being interviewed uh, or he was one of the panel on question time and his phone went off it was when uh, David Dimbleby was uh, chairing at question time and Heseltine reached into his pocket produced his phone and answered it <laughs> in the middle of the program and it was his wife asking him what time he was going to be in for dinner um, <laughs> And he just continued to have this conversation and said, all right, bye, dear, put it away and carried on with the programme. So I, I do know mobile phones can be uh, an irritation. But yeah, no, sorry, the question was really about um, different types of interviewee. Um, some people have remarkable powers of recall. When mm-hmm. I was doing the Toby Jug book, um, as I say, I've broken it down into chapters. So some focus on the pub itself, how it came about. Quite a lot focuses on the music history because that resonates with so many people. And then towards the end, it's the final days of the pub and its demolition. And I had probably more people talking to me about the music than anything. So it was slightly harder to find sources for the other um, aspects. But I struck gold with a guy called Roy Lomass, to whom I will always be grateful. Um, He worked as a barman at the pub uh, right through the 1960s and into the early 1970s. So coming up to the time when David Bowie made his one famous appearance in Tolworth. But his memory is quite unlike any I've ever encountered in any person I've been interviewing. He was able to walk around the pub still, a pub long demolished. He could describe every footstep he took, what he saw on the walls. Did the pub have a cellar? And he said, yes. I said, tell me about it. He said, well, you turn to your 
left and the door was there was the handle you open it up you walk down seven steps to your left is the red wine store to your right is the white wine store and then the spirit store which has a mesh over it <clears throat> this is it's sort of 40 50 years later a mesh over it with a padlock and then if you look straight ahead you've got the beer cellar uh, with all the barrels up on little bits of wood the detail was remarkable. He, he was just phenomenal. Uh, and he was able to describe just about everything I needed to know about the pub where the room Bowie performed in. It turned out he built the stage he stood on, um, a, a one foot high stage. He almost told me what type of wood it was. A just incredible memory. And then other people, I interviewed about the music side of things. One of them said, oh, and of course I saw the Rolling Stones there. And I said, no, I, I, I don't think this. Oh yeah, yeah, saw the Stones there. I said, uh, no, I've, I've actually got a, a, no, no, it was the Stones, I, I saw them, I was there. Turned out he'd seen them at some hall in Richmond. Um, and eventually I managed to persuade him that he hadn't seen the stones at, at Tolworth. But it is funny, people get absolutely convinced. Um, and, and perhaps from talking to other people, friends who reinforce it and say, oh, yeah, we went to see the stones there. Um, memory is a funny thing. I mean, it's it's great. It gives you the flavour. It gives you someone's perspective. But it's not always 100%. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, Rib, I know um, in, in my experience, I've certainly had a few interviewees who perhaps need a little bit of warming up. They they, they sort of they, 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 their initial answers can be very short uh, and you realize they're just not comfortable kind of expanding and they're not they're not feeling just generally in the most comfortable place. I mean, do you have any sort of techniques you use to sort of make people more at ease or warm them up into the interview? Well, a few. I mean, like Tim, I, had, I will just have a chat with them before we start. And the more nervous they seem, the longer I'll let that chat be. Uh, you know, uh, yes, I would like another cup of tea. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, before we start. Um, and then sometimes they seem fine. But then the moment you press start on the machine, you can see them tense up. Oh, my God, it's really happening. Uh, you know, so then you, you have to ask them some questions you know are not going to be of any use to your interview. Uh, you're just asking them questions that give them time to lower their heart rate again. Um, and then we we very often ask, we, we think in terms of topics rather than going in with a list of questions. And those topics will, will each one will be with a very open question, you know, the, the tell me about question, actually just as Tim did about the cellar, you know, so tell me about the cellar. Um, but some people, those open questions, they get, it's too much. Like, where do I start, you know? Um, so sometimes you have to narrow it down um, and not ask as open a question as you would like, because some people just find it very difficult to handle open questions. That's actually, and it's a really good point you make about the when the equipment goes on, the the the, the change in people, and I, and I think there's a there's a, it's it sort of directly uh, correlates to how 
big and imposing your equipment is. It's why I always prefer audio to video because a camera in someone's face, I think immediately scares scares them. Whereas I think a small little microphone that you could just place in the middle. Uh, and, you know, recently I've started using more of these, these bigger microphones, these external mics that you plug into your Zoom recorder or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and even then I notice people people suddenly think they're they're live on the radio kind of thing. You know, it's uh, it's an interesting it's interesting, isn't it? The, the importance of the technical side of things. But we, we in our history, and I know people in radio think, oh, my God, but we, we, we don't use the headphones. Um, we use headphones just for the sound check, but actually yep. don't use headphones while we're interviewing. And that's partly for that reason. Or I think it's mainly for that reason, um, because you don't use the headphones and you're just using a tiny little lapel mic. They forget after a while that they're being interviewed. They're just talking to you. You know, and people tell you stuff, amazing stuff, sometimes that they've never told anybody else. And they forget, actually, this is actually for public consumption, yeah. you know, because they're just talking to you. Yeah. So the, the importance of setting up that relationship and, uh, and the warmth of relationship is, is important. I think the crucial thing is to get them onto their second pint of beer. <laughs> um, at, at that point, everything kind of relaxes. They've already been chatting for a little bit. Um, and it's interesting that do you prepare questions in advance? I, I used to, when I was a very junior reporter, I would turn up to an interview with a notebook full of questions, but it doesn't work. It, it, it really doesn't work. You're far better trying to articulate a question, even if you stumble and fumble as you, as you ask it. Um, I, I, we did quite a few, get quite a few work experience people at our humble little Surbiton newspaper, simply because no other local newspapers seem to be taking people on to do work experience in the summer. And if I ever go, uh, I'll take a, a, you know, a young school kid out to interview someone. And they will always have this list of questions in their notebook in front of them. So they'll be staring down at this list of questions like this, not looking at the person they're talking to. And they'll ask the first question, you know, uh, uh, um, ha have you lived here a long time? And the person will answer and they'll be straight on to the next one. Uh, and what is your favourite? You know, it's <laughs> it's going down an awful list. Well, it's not actually listening to the response. I think the problem is it leads to not listening to the answer because you don't need mm. to. Mm. So you ask the question, whatever the person says, as you say, they just ask the next question. So yeah. you take the list of questions away. They've got to listen to the answer, and you've got yeah. to work with the answers. Yeah, and that would be very exploring good, memory. It's true. I think it's a very good interview tip is not to prepare questions is yeah. to let the thing flow naturally and, exactly and and embrace that fact and go with the flow if it moves off into a different direction unless you're really specifically after direct information yeah. on one particular point and your time is very limited yes mm -hmm. then bring them back all the time to the thing you want to know <clears throat> but otherwise let it go let it yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and find that context because by letting it go, you find everything around it that is fascinating. And you stumble upon unexpected things, things that you never dreamt you'd be actually asking them about, but that might be far more interesting than the original reason you were there. Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that moves us on to moves us on nicely to uh, you know interview process, interview technique. Um, I mean, I'm 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 fully with you. The, the, the there's an importance to being uh, you know nimble on your feet, not blindly sticking to your pre pre uh, pre notions of what the interview is going to be. Responding to things as they emerge, I think is is really important. Um, but yeah, on that note, I wonder, Rib, just before you go to do an interview, um, what is sort of on your checklist before you go out and do the interview itself? What do you need to make sure you've got in order before you sit down with the person? I make sure the, the equipment's working. That's yes. the most important thing. I, I was going to ask, actually, have you ever had any total disasters where you oh, come yeah. home and you've got, you've got no interview? Yeah, I had one. Um, and I don't normally interview famous people, but this was Hilary Mantel. So I was interviewing Hilary Mantel and the interview went well. We got to the end of it and I always play back the beginning of the interview, you know, just to check that so we can sleep at night, really. So I played that at the beginning and it was. And she looked at me and I looked at her. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, I turned the thing away and took it to a um, technician who said, well, did you reformat the card after the last use? And I said, well, no. I, I deleted the last interview. He said, that's not enough. You've got to reformat the card. Otherwise, you can have traces of the interview left on the card, which can distort the next interview. And that's what had happened. So it was completely unusable. She did say in her lovely bird-like little voice, oh, it's okay, you'll come back another day. And, and I did. Uh, but of course, it wasn't as good because she'd already told yeah. me the stories. You know, it was never going to yeah. be as good. Um, so yes, the, the occasional disaster. But I knew there's not much you can do about that particular one, uh, you know, in my case, except remember to reformat the card every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so just just making sure your equipment's working. So you you you, you would typically use a, a recorder and some lapel mics um, to, to, to conduct the interview. Yeah, and you I just... take along spares now as well. You know, spare yeah. SD cards, spare microphones, spare batteries. Um, spare um, power bank because I power the thing from the power bank. The batteries are just just for backup. So always having two, using two um, forms of power. So the the power bank for the power, the batteries for the backup, and and then having a backup for the backup. You know, um, yeah. for just in cases. Yeah, I mean, I've, had, I've had similar with uh, just recording um, people I've been interviewing on my phone and. Um, and just getting it wrong, hitting the wrong button at the end and not saving it. I was interviewing um, Dominic Raab, uh, the oh, MP. Poor you. <laughs> at, at the time of recording, still the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. The, yeah, the, the, the afternoon is young. I was interviewing him in a cafe in Thames Ditton, and um, I put my, uh, as, as he was completely used to with journalists, I put my phone down on the table and we just chatted away marvellously for about half an hour. And knowing it was being recorded, I'd made very scant little notes in a notebook, hardly anything, and then got home and realised it hadn't worked. Mm -hmm. And I was devastated because mm. he'd actually come out with some quite good stuff. I think talking to a local journalist, he'd been perhaps a little less on his guard than uh, talking to one of these sort of national news hounds. Um, well, what was, what was that it. for, Tim? Was, was, was that for a story comic? It was for the Good Life paper that I do oh, okay. in, in Surbiton. I've been doing for the last uh, 11 years. Um, because he's the Long Ditton MP and we distribute some papers in Long Ditton, 
Um, he's kind of of interest just as much as the Surbiton MP, Ed Davey, the uh, Lib Dem uh, leader. So actually, it's quite useful to have two quite high profile MPs in the area because, I mean, anything they do is is therefore newsworthy. Mm. But I was mortified and mm. I had to try and immediately piece together from these scant notes what I thought he probably had said. But then, of course, I didn't have any record of it. So it was very difficult quoting him directly. There were only mm. a handful of phrases I could actually remember. Uh, word for word. And I, and I imagine, unlike Hilary Mantel, he was probably less inclined to go, come back another time. Yeah, no chance. It had taken six months to fix up that Friday morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, it actually reminds me, but from a different angle, um, that you can find yourself feeling quite empathetic to people that you never dreamt you would. Um, I, I remember interviewing Lord Lane, who was um, very close to Margaret Thatcher. Um, and that, that's about as far from my politics as you can get. Um, but the interview went fine. Um, and then at the end, he said, well, you know, if, if there are a lot of things that you think of, do, do come back. So he had listened to the interview afterwards, and I did too. And he said, oh, there's some things I'd like to add. Anyway, I finished up doing three interviews with him, and we got on extremely well. Uh, and then he died. And his family got on to me to say how much he'd enjoyed it and how wonderful it was to have the interviews for the family. You know, and they came and all said hello to me. And um, I found it very, very strange, really. Um, but yeah, when you go into people's lives and people open up their lives, whatever those lives are, you find yourself drawn to them. I think, I think that's a, a thing to be said for for journalism or uh, being an oral historian or, or any of these forms of um, of, of work. Uh, they 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 do they, they they do get you out your bubble. Um, they do they do get, you know introduce you to the types of people that you, you you might not previously have thought you'd be talking to, and you might not previously thought you would find any affinity with. And then and then you know stories such as that um, prove yeah proves you wrong. Um, and then yeah, I, 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 the, the, you know this. What we've just been talking about there with the uh, Dominic Raab and Hilary Mantle examples uh, brings us on to sort of the post interview, um, you know, what we do with this content. And this might be where we do divulge, uh, divulge quite significantly between the oral historian and the, and the written journalist, um, because obviously with an oral historian, they need to use that audio. That audio needs to be available. And, and Rib, in your example there, um, the audio is completely useless. Um, so that that interview is essentially a, a write-off. Whereas, I guess with you, Tim, you were able to, to still scramble something together in the written form. Um, I was. I, I was able to piece together. I mean, I think all interviews in a way are, um, and all news stories and all books probably, are a kind of huge jigsaw. And you you fit together the pieces into the finished product uh, when you get pretty much the full picture. So certainly from my point of view, any interviews I've got often scratched down on, on you know, funny little bits of paper or in old notebooks that are there on the back of a diary or anywhere, um, I will scribble things down and then draw them together these days on a screen. It used to be on a dear old manual typewriter. Um, and then you kind of filter everything through your head. Um, you you filter out the bits that aren't of any use. You bring to the top of the story the most interesting facts. 
the sort of headline, the grabbing, the bit to grab the reader's attention, but you're very much writing it to be read. Um, and any scraps of interview that you may have on a on a phone just disappear, just get wiped. Um, and you end up then just crunching the words into the best possible readable form. Uh, and that's the finished product. So that presumably, hopefully in a hundred years time, someone will pick up my book um, about Bowie's gig and be interested enough in, in the story that I've written and the way I've written it to persevere through and, and read the book. I mean, that's, I guess, what, what will happen. I'm hoping it will happen. Um, but you filter everything. Uh, and you you perhaps take small quotes from someone uh, that you've interviewed rather than a slab of interview. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm currently writing the copy for the uh, exhibition going to the museum, so I can tell you I'm currently picking up your book a lot this week. So uh, <laughs> very useful resource. Um, yeah, no, but on that post interview process, um, Rib, I think. Certainly when it comes to the oral history way of doing things, but this also applies to my line of work in, in podcasts and audio audio production. Um, one area that I think can be very easy to underestimate is the transcription, um, is, is, is turning the... Now, this is something that has changed a lot since even since um uh you gave us training for rpm some some seven eight years ago um uh i think back then i think we were doing our transcriptions pretty much by hand uh you know listening to it at a half speed or whatever now there's all sorts of software that that, that does it for you they come with their own pitfalls but i wonder if if you've got much experience of so we're using software called descript which is relatively new but but is a sort of auto transcription but also has the waveforms within there and do you do you have much experience of these sorts of software? How do you go about transcribing? Um, yeah, these days, it, it depends on the strength of the accent of the speaker, actually. Mm. Because my experience is um, programs like Otter or Trint, um, they're very good if you've got, if, if the speakers have got accents that are close to received pronunciation. You know, so they sound as if they come from somewhere near the middle of Oxford. Uh, but the further out you get from the middle of Oxford, the more trouble they have with them. Um, so I know the British Library had to give up on using um, a, uh, a voice recognition software uh, attempt to transcribe Irish interviews because it was just all over the place. Um, and I know that the same thing has applied on a number of different projects um, where you've got you've got strong accents and it will take you longer, sadly, to go through and correct what the voice recognition software has come up with than it would to just type the blimming thing out you know, yourself in the first mm -hmm. place. So um, yes, I use it. I'm using it at the moment for on a project, but um, it really does depend on who you're talking to, I think. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's such a, um, you know, it can feel like such a long, laborious thing to do the transcription. Um, but where, but most which, projects where, don't need full transcribe. It's a full transcript. You know, sure. most projects, they need a summary a detailed summary with timings uh, and then you transcribe whichever bits you're going to use uh, yeah mostly yeah. you don't have to transcribe the whole thing and possibly key words as well just to be able for people to be able to search through yeah. oral history to be able to see i mean for example the toby jug uh you know if that 
was a, a particular topic that cropped up in an oral history, um, I guess people would need to search for that. Um, it's quite interesting what you were saying uh, about that, Jarek. The um, it, it's the same with the written word. They have all these programs, these, what is it, optical character recognition things where they will um, attempt to scan um, an old book, perhaps written in a slightly fancy uh, typeface. Um, and it never quite works out. And I've seen some awful examples um, that are actually foisted off as accurate transcriptions of an original old book um, that are gobbledygook in places that, mm. that it'll pick up a, an O and think it's a C and um, they are all you know you do need human input at some point certainly. Yes you absolutely do yeah I mean just 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 explain a bit more about the software I just mentioned the script it's 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 not only voice recognition software it also contains within the software the the waveform as well so the idea is as well as being able to refer to the transcription you can then lift bits out of it and it takes the, the audio with it and yeah. so you can go that's a good clip copy and paste um so um and and you can edit by just editing the transcription in theory really really useful and a big time saver but like a lot of these things it's still in its infancy it's still it's still got bugs it's still got things so yeah i'm i'm working you know i've i've We've got five interviews done for Ramp, which are going into this exhibition. I've got five of our volunteers um, uh, valiantly working through the script at the minute, and I'm getting sort of the reports back of the various issues that are coming up. So it's it's an interesting one. Um, it's it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Um, from the audio editing side, I don't want it to evolve too much because I'm out of a job. But you know, um, I think um, for, for for yeah, it's got the potential to be to to, to be really really handy. Um, and yeah, and that that sort of takes me into the sort of uh, sort of last section quite nicely. I'd like to sort of uh, bring the topics we've been talking about into the context of of, of music and 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 specifically the the amp project that I'm working on. Um, I just want Rib in, in, in your time. Have you come across any projects that have um, uh, worked with music heritage specifically in a, in an interesting way? A lot of the plays that I've written and directed based on our history have incorporated songs. So we've had people writing songs um, where, because the thing about it, if you're, if you're limiting yourself to the words, you're not making anything up, it's not a fiction play, you're limiting yourself to the words that people said, people don't always tell the story as it were, they, they tell their bit, but, no, but they don't necessarily tell the overall story. So we would use the songs essentially to tell the story um, and, the scenes would exemplify as if, if that makes sense mm -hmm. um so songs were, were very important in in all of those um and i've known i've known projects where um songs have been the ultimate outcome of using art history so they've 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 taken lines from art histories and, and developed songs for them so yeah 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 that's actually really interesting i did, we didn't we didn't sort of speak speak that much about the those ways of using oral histories. I mean, I know I've I've been to plays that are based entirely on 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 oral, oral history. So that's yeah, those are other really interesting ways of of using it. Um, Tim, knowing this, you know, you're, you're possibly uh, as as knowledgeable about the the music heritage of, of of the Kingston Borough as much as anyone. I mean, knowing this heritage as you do, and knowing that you know, with with AMP, we are we are still sort of 
you know, we're still in early-ish days. We've got the exhibition coming, but that is just the start, really. Um, knowing the history yeah. as you do, are there any particular sort of topics or uh, areas of this history that you think warrant particular uh, exploration? If you if you were going to pick a a, a a side of it, aside from the Bowie angle, is there is there anything you'd particularly focus on? I, I would say, I mean, it's great getting people chatting about their earliest gig-going memories. So people will have a huge affection still for the music they bought, listened to, went to see uh, in their late teens, early 20s, particularly. I remember, in, you know, interviewing people for the uh, Hello Torah, I'm Ziggy book. Um, there were, you, you'd get a, a strange expression on people's faces when you'd ask them about, you know, do you remember that? Um, gig back in 1969 uh, you know you were only you were at school at the time can what can you remember and they'll start off you you'll see their expression change they suddenly lighten up they they go back to those days they remember the car they drove to the gig in they remember mm. weird things like the the smell of wet afghan coats um it's those sort of memories that that are really give you a very clear and complete picture of the gig they were attending. So, I mean, if if you wanted any advice, goodness, I can hardly give you advice. But if you did want advice on that, ask people about their earliest gig memories. Uh, what concerts did they go to see? What groups did they see in pubs? What groups did they see in the local church hall? I mean, sometimes it's quite big names starting out. Um, people have a lot of stories about, oh, I was at the, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin gig and, and everything. And, and people love to say, I was there in the mm. early days of a, of a band that later became a huge success. I had, I had one great guy um, going back to the Chicken Shack and Fleetwood Mac days at the Toby Jug. There was one chap, there were 300 people in for um, Chicken Shack. So it was when Christine Perfect was still Christine Perfect before she became uh, Christine McVie later on. She was on a, a piano stool. There was nowhere else in the room to sit. So this guy who was at the gig perched on the other end of the stool with her. And she just moved up a little bit to give him a bit of space. So she, there she was. She was cheek to cheek with this guy from the local factory who is still dining out on this memory <laughs> 50 or 60 years later. Um, I'm sure she is as um, well. I'm sure she I'm is. Sure she is. I'm sure she is. Um, well, she sadly died last year. But, but, um, but yes, it's those little memories, uh, those little weird glimpses of how life was and you know especially in relation to people who then went on to become uh very famous later on in life those those are the things that people love to recall if i just pick up on one little bit of what you were saying tim which is it, uh, whatever you're interviewing about those years the late teens early 20s seem to be the most vivid for almost everybody yeah. it's where your life changes where you become independent you know, where yep. you may move away, you may have serious relationships and so on. You're becoming an adult. And 
they are such such strong yeah. and emotional memories uh, for, for everybody and particularly for music I think. Right. Um, the early years of music especially when you started to get pocket money you were doing that um the newspaper delivery round on the saturday you got a bit of cash you could go down the road to the record shop and buy that first few singles first few albums those are the key memories you know you ask people well tell me about the um records that you used to buy and suddenly they're on mm. and it's so mm. revealing what they used to actually buy what they invested their precious 50p in buying so intriguing yeah, yeah absolutely um just to just, just say what you're saying about the the i was there factor um and you know the uh, relating back to your earlier story about the chap who was convinced he saw the rolling stones at the toby jug i mean um i'm sure since i've started putting out facebook messages about this exhibition yeah. suddenly there's so many people who are out there in the room with bowie uh that we found all 60 <laughs> suddenly packed into a room that uh, actually <laughs> held 60 at the time but yes um, I, that's, funny, yeah. that, that's part of our job isn't it to to to, to be discerning as to as to who, who who we think is 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 genuine about this uh and and who maybe has a has a false a false yeah, memory from, for, the book, for, for the purposes of the book I, I always tried to get corroboration from somebody else if i could mm. Um, one of my great sources was um, a group of former schoolboys from Surbiton County Grammar School, no longer exists, but they still have an annual get together in the Victoria pub in Surbiton one evening in the autumn. And I always make a point of going along and even though I wasn't at that school, um, just to chat to them. And when you get two or three of them round the table, who were all in the same year at school and all went out to listen to local music, they will correct each other. They will actually put people mm. right if they've got one particular fact wrong. Um, that's a very good way of doing it. If you can get a little group of people, I don't know, Rib, if you interview people together or if you stick to mostly individuals, individuals but occasionally together and, and I can see what you mean about the group but it can also work in the opposite direction yeah. you can get a sort of collective memory created where they, they all sort of agree a collective line this is what yeah. happened when actually mm. yeah. it's not yeah. <laughs> no. so it can work both yeah. ways yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Um, right, chaps. Well, I, th I think that sort of uh, uh, enables us to wrap up. Unless either of you have anything anything else you, you, you haven't mentioned that you think is, is worthy of mentioning at this stage? I've just really enjoyed listening to Tim. So thank you. No, I, I've enjoyed <laughs> listening to Rib. And I'd particularly like to say that the RPM interviews, I was greatly struck by. I listened. Uh, they were set up in the... Uh, top floor of the Rose Theatre. That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We had an exhibition of the Rose, yeah. So there was a set of headphones just hanging off the wall, and I was very intrigued by that. Put them on, and it turned out to be a couple who met at the It was, uh, yes, uh, Margaret and Robin Wiles, I think their, name, their names are. But yes. It, it would have been maybe very early 60s, something like that. Um, so I found that very intriguing that, too. That, yes. um, I, I did enjoy the RPM. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. That's interesting because that is a, an example of a, of a group interview. That was a husband and wife we did together. Um, and, and, I, and I and I 
Yeah, I completely agree with 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 both of you as to the advantages and potential disadvantages of the group interview. I, I do them occasionally myself, and and yeah, I think I think it's something you have to be careful around. But sometimes it can really work, and I think it did. Sometimes it can work very well, but then other times they'll be sort of saying, "No, we didn't do that." Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We didn't, you know, and you end up like <laughs> or, that. Or you yeah. could just have an hour of cross talking, and you know that sort of thing. So yeah, 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 it is something one has to be one has to be careful about. But um, but yeah, I'm really glad you like the RPM interviews, and hopefully you'll like the the AMP interviews in the same way, which is a perfect segue to me plugging uh, the exhibition one more time. Um, so yeah, I mean, please, if you're watching this webinar, and this is the sort of work that interests you, whether it be interviewing journalistically, whether it be oral histories, um, then please do get in touch. Um, I'm sure the details will, will be on the Creative Youth page. Um, and if you're interested in AMP specifically, um, yes, we have the exhibition going into Kingston Museum. It'll be open from the 31st of March. It's in the gallery room upstairs there. So please do come and see it. Um, but as I say, it's just the start. We are doing a lot more interviews. We are providing oral history training and we are going to, um, yeah, we're going to get volunteers to do interviews. We're going to get volunteers to help out with the whole heritage element. So please do get in touch if you would like to volunteer on the project. Um, it's going to be really interesting. There's so many other stories that we have only really scratched the surface on. So I'm really looking forward to digging into those in more detail. Um, but yeah, all that's left for me to do is to, is to thank Rib and Tim and to thank you for watching. Um, and yeah, thank you very much. And you.